It's interesting how a pandemic can impact policy. With so much money going out the federal door in CERB payments to Canadians, it seems quite a few people are kicking the tires again on the idea of a guaranteed annual income. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. It's been almost three months since the pandemic locked us down to flatten the curve. Thousands thrown out of work due to the restrictions, but they still have to pay the bills. And that's where the idea of a basic income, universal basic income, or guaranteed annual income whatever you want to call it, where that discussion arises. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been pushing hard for it. The Liberals, though, they're sticking with their current targeted payments. The idea is polarizing. Some see it as a hand up to improve the lives who are struggling. On the flip side, others see it as a disincentive to work. Today on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at universal basic income and whether it's too expensive or it'll be offset by the lack of need for social services because people have an income. Coming up on the podcast, we'll talk to Stephen Gordon, economics professor at the University of Laval. As well, Courtney Cable is a PhD student at the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. And starting us off, Roderick Benz. He's an author on the issue as well as with the Basic Income Canada Network. And Roderick, targeted basic income. From the BICN perspective, who qualifies? Well, basic income uh, qualifications is is up for grabs, but I mean, no one should be left out. That's the idea of a basic income. There should be some sort of ceiling um, that is close to a living wage for people um, so that no one is left out. That's the whole idea of it. The guaranteed annual income discussion, basic income, whatever you want to call it, has uh, it's been up and down. We've had this conversation over the last few years, but do you think more people are receptive to it now because of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I see a great groundswell of support for the idea of a basic income. People are, are realizing that um, even before the pandemic, there were three trends that were making life more insecure for people. Uh, there was technological change that was so rapid, it was stealing jobs uh, left, right, and center. Um, The fact that so much of our work today, so much of our essential and meaningful work is unpaid from raising kids to uh, sustaining democracies in our communities, uh, taking care of elderly parents. We haven't done a good job of valuing and and supporting that kind of work. Um, And and that certainly affects uh, women uh, more than men. And third, uh, public policies all over the map. Some of it has been driven by austerity, uh, adding to job insecurity. Um, at the same time, there have been many programs aimed at poverty reduction and some help, some harm. And many of them are too complex and inadequate to meet our current needs. You know, when you look at a, we'll call it just a, a basic income right now, but what, when you look at a basic income, you, you would get a, cert, a set amount of money uh, a month. Now, if you started working, does, the government starts clawing bed of that back, does it not? Yes, it does. That's in the negative income tax model, um, which is the one that has the most political support in Canada and most countries. Yeah, it does claw some back. Getting that right, getting that sweet spot where you're encouraging people to look for work while at the same time ensuring they don't slip beyond uh, poverty means, um, that's that's the all-important Thing for policy wonks to figure out. And uh, in the recent Ontario basic income pilot, um, there was a, a set amount and then it was taxed. You got to, you got to earn 50 cents on the 50 cent dollars when you took a job. I think that could probably be tweaked with a little bit more finesse uh, um, and be more progressive so that maybe it's 
75 cents, then 50 and so on, depending on, uh, on each circumstance. Roderick Benz is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe as we talk about a guaranteed annual income or a uh, universal basic income. You know, when, when we look at something like that, you know, we, I, I can I understand the help up. The, the people on the other side of the coin are saying, how does this encourage people to work? Well, people are hardwired uh, to find meaning in their lives, I think. So there could be a blip of not working at first while people maybe get used to the fact that, hey, I'm, I'm not going to slip uh, below the, you know, you know, in the cracks and I'm not going to be forgotten. Then they're going to look for things to do. It's going to eventually improve the job markets as well because employers will have to start paying a living wage, which is uh, part of the problem that we have right now with so many corporations not meeting that basic living wage standard. Um, so it's, it's going to reshape our whole economy and our thinking. You know, in terms of uh, the uh, the universal basic income, uh, how, how does this help people get a better education? So they you know paves the path for a, a better career down the line. Well, people feel more secure about going back to school if, based on our patchwork of loan systems that we have across Canada. Um, I know from analyzing the Ontario data. Uh, that that we did here in uh, in Lindsay, where I'm based, one of the three pilot sites. Um, there were many people who were choosing to go back to school and and uh, you know choose a post secondary path that was going to help their families. And then that rug was pulled out, as you know, by the the current conservative government. Well, let's talk about the pilot project. And uh, I'm very familiar with uh, with the Lindsay area. How did how was it accepted within the community? It was tentative at first, and then there was a groundswell of support once people saw what it meant that that so many people that who had been left behind were not being left behind. We even had more conservative thinkers um, speaking about uh, the realization how great this was. We had our, our hospital head, our police chief, all our community leaders on board, our mayor eventually, who, who was also tentative at first. All these people coming on board uh, in realization that something needed to change because what we have right now is certainly not working. All right. So the pilot project, it started off tentatively in, in Lindsay. And then as it grew, you, you said more people, obviously, was more acceptance. What was the impact yeah. on the community and those people when the pilot project was cut loose? Yeah, it was profound. Um this is work that my wife has documented as a, as a researcher for uh, York University as well. Um, she's involved in, in research about basic income for a PhD, uh, whereas I write about it frequently. Um, lives were, were transformed. We had people able to uh, choose healthy food for the first time. We had, we had people choosing to go back to school, like I said. We had fewer emergency room visits already in the short time that it was here. Um, less emergency calls. It, it was there was a sense of security that one really can only find in the Scandinavian countries right now, which is certainly a path that I think we need to be we need to be emulating. Was there a lot of outrage in uh, in Lindsay, Kawartha Lakes, when uh, the pro- the project was uh, canceled? There certainly was, and, and we led it as uh, the Lindsay Advocate, our our independent media outlet here. We certainly led that charge of outrage, and um, 
it was it was unconscionable really what what the government did particularly when it was already well into the program we lost a lot of valuable data we mined what we could and we've shared what we can but it would have been so much richer had it just been left alone 150 million as we're seeing now is a drop in the bucket and that's that's what was needed to complete that pilot how much uh, how much would it cost what would the, the price tag be to get a, a universal basic income up and running here in Canada well as my friend uh, Evelyn Forget says um, she quoted a number of about 40 billion dollars as the uh, the Prime Minister's office the uh, the budget office has indicated but if you start factoring in the uh, dismantling eventually of certain social programs across the country, we could probably get that figure down closer to $20 billion. Hmm. And again, look at what we're spending now. Exactly. Roderick, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Roderick Benz has penned several books on basic income and is a member of the Basic Income Canada Network. The province of Quebec had economists take a look at the feasibility of a guaranteed annual income. Bottom line, they decided that tweaking the current system of benefits would be the best financially. Stephen Gordon's an economics professor at the University of Laval, as well as a columnist, and he joins us now. And Stephen, the report by the three economists did not uh, back a guaranteed annual income. Why was that? Well, I mean, it, it wasn't. It still wasn't make recommendations. It was more just to uh, just to uh, uh, set out what the what the choices are. And the uh, I think the best way of doing it, of looking at the basic income, is uh, Kevin Milligan's uh, impossible trilemma. You can have uh, generous payments, you can have modest costs, and you can have a modest uh, clawback rate, which basically basically means that it works out to a tax rate. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can only have two of those three. Um, and if the uh, um, if you just take the existing budget uh, for income support and divide it, you know, amongst the entire population, you get like a couple of hundred dollars a year. That that's that's the kind of scale it is. Mm-hmm. If you want to have um, something a little bit, a little bit more generous, you're going to incre- have to increase taxes by a lot. Um, so this is uh, really kind of the the issue here. Um, the the costs are huge if you want to have it uh, look like what all the with all the uh, advocates like want it to look like, and if you don't have those modest, if you don't want huge costs, you're going to have um, very strong disincentives to work. People are going to be facing uh, um, tax rates of 75, 80, 90 percent, or you're just going to have you know, payments that are just so small that they're just basically useless. Now, you had mentioned uh, when the, the economists took a look at uh, the GAI that uh, expectations were too much. Oh, yeah. how, how, how so? Um, well, because people think, people think that everyone's going to get, you know, checks for $2,000 a month. Uh, and, I mean, the, the, the way people do this is they, they think, you know, they talk about the, uh, how it would help people in poverty, and that's true, it would. Uh, the... Uh, the, all the you know the, the benefits for cash transfers are well documented. People are very sensible with what they, with the money that they get. Um, like this is all very true. The problem is always going to be the cost. Um, yeah, I'm just looking up here. Uh, like what they found is that if they say you want to send six thousand dollars a six thousand dollars a year, 
uh, that would cost 36 million billion in, in Quebec, which is about half of the existing tax, uh, the, the existing tax burden. So just the numbers are just so huge. Any kind of system where you're going to have half of the, half of the payments going to the top half with income distribution is going to be ridiculously expensive. I would imagine part of that expense would be the, the mechanics of it as well. It could, it could turn into a, you know, a big bureaucracy. No, no, no. That's that. That people talk too much about that. No, they, this is something that the tax system already does. Uh, mm-hmm. the, we can tweak these things. People do have direct deposit based on the. And there's that. That's actually not, that's the least of the issue. The uh, we already have um, a bureaucracy set up to deliver checks or to you know do direct deposit. This would be a very minor co- cost. That's not it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's basically the cost of uh, putting out that. Now, the, the PBO uh, figured providing UBI to about seven and a half million Canadians would cost forty three million. You caught or forty three billion. You calculated at eight hundred billion. Well, no, no, that was so. It's being facetious. Oh. It's basically just basically no, no. The and it, also that uh, that PBO report was about the Ontario uh, system, and the Ontario uh, pilot had issues of its own. Um, the it had a very serious clawback rates. Um, people would be facing tax tax rates of about you know ninety percent. The biggest winners of the Ontario program would have been adult children living at home, uh, because it's it's not based on the uh, families; it's based on the individuals. So those people would be the most uh, would be the big, biggest winners. There were all there were all kinds of problems with the uh, Ontario thing. It's not really nobody would really want to use that as a great model. Among other things, for example, the Ontario system. Um, anybody who had disability payments wouldn't get them anymore. Uh, you know, any, anybody, people on disability would have been uh, mm-hmm. uh, really badly hit under the Ontario system. So there's just, you know, the Ontario system was there was expensive and just bad. So uh, people people have to rethink that one. Now, in, in terms of a, a you know a GAI or a universal basic income. Is there is there an idea of putting this forward? You, you mentioned you know getting the the three things lined up that would be a little bit easier to deal with economically. Is there a way of doing that? Do you see a way of doing that? No, I really think that uh, the looking for a big grand gestures is not the way to do it. You we want to help the people who who are in need and you know just work to strengthen support you know strengthen fix holes in. Um, the existing system um, that we have instead of trying to figure out some way of, you know, paying thousands of dollars to people who don't need it. Uh, we really want to have some way of get, getting the, the um, getting the income, revenue right. uh, cash to uh, people in with low incomes and do it in such a way that um, they don't have a you know, huge disincentive uh, against working. Yeah, the clawback on earnings, I think, is, is something a lot of people don't take into account. It's, uh, you, yeah. it's nice that you... You, you get that check, but when you start working again, some of that stuff is coming out of you, and then, you know, you could be paying more than what you were making in the first place. Oh yeah, that's we already have that problem with uh, the existing system because there are many, many, many benefits that are, of course, clawed back as you get more income. And there are people who have, uh, you know, with low income, who are base, who sometimes face. Uh, tax rates of above 100%, which means that, you know, if they actually work an extra 10 hours a week, they, they actually um, lose money. And that's a, that's a problem. And it's, uh, there's no one, that's not one for, for which there's a really an, um, a simple solution. Stephen, I want to thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you. 
Stephen Gordon is a columnist and economics professor at the University of Laval. The chorus of voices of support for a guaranteed annual income continues to grow. The federal government is considering more programs to keep Canadians afloat, but is this the only one that's really needed? Courtney Cable is a Ph.D. student at the Centre for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto, and she joins us now. And Courtney, why is a guaranteed annual income a better option than CERB? Um, so the CERB, first of all, we know that the CERB is ending soon, and so we have the government's going to have to come up with new uh, solutions to help um, people um, support their income. Uh, as the pandemic goes on, I think a basic income is better than the CERB because it's not conditional on working, right? And so one of the major problems with the CERB is that um, individuals were not able to quit their job. Mm-hmm. And so they they were not provided with the same, particularly low-income individuals, they were not given the ability to say no to work that they think might be unsafe. Right, so they had to be uh, laid off by their employers rather than just having the choice to say no. And so there's a lot of discussion currently um, in designing a new benefit um, to replace the CERB or extend the CERB. And there's a concern around work disincentives. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the same reason, because the pandemic is still ongoing, because uh, or uh, and and you know, people, lower income people with health concerns or that are living with family members with health concerns, a basic income is a is a better solution because it does not require them or force them to go into work. And so I, I do see I do think there's that we should discuss work disincentives about a basic income in a nor, in normal times. But I think given the, the pandemic and the health issues surrounding that, that it's um, for for reasons related to equity that perhaps we shouldn't be concerned about work disincentives. Where can Canada look to where a guaranteed annual income works? Um, so there has no country has actually implemented a full fledged unconditional basic income that is sufficient to meet basic needs. Uh, there are um, so, for instance, Greece does have a constitutionally guaranteed minimum income but it's again it's so a basic income must be sufficient to meet basic needs the the one the program in Greece is not sufficient to be, meet basic needs but it does give us some ideas of how to design a basic income uh, there have been a number of pilot programs um, that have tried to measure how a basic income will impact people's lives and how individuals may respond behaviorally to, to a basic income guarantee um, but in my opinion, the pilots don't really give us good insight into whether and how a basic income will work will work for a few reasons. So they're short term. They have a clear end date. Um, they also exclude middle and higher income individuals who would ultimately end up paying for the basic income through higher taxes. And there might be decision decision making among married couples in particular. Um, in the middle income category who might adjust to a basic income, but we won't see them in a, how they adjust in a pilot because they're not included in the eligibility criteria to be a part of the pilot. 
Uh, so for these reasons, I don't think pilots actually give us a good picture of whether a basic income actually works or how it, how it might work. But all that said, I, in Canada, we do have two major programs that are essentially conditional basic income. Um, so we have old age security, which is distributed to seniors. And we have the Canada Child Benefit, which is distributed to families with children. And so these these two programs are basic incomes in the sense that the income is provided and they do not have to search for work to receive to receive the income. Um, but they're they're distinct from what we what we would traditionally consider a basic income because they um, are conditional on age. Right. So you either have to be a senior or a child. And so these two programs are are very good templates for a basic income. They've been extremely effective, um, extremely effective at lifting seniors and families uh, with children out of poverty. Right. So right here in Canada, we have two very good examples of where a conditional basic income has worked. But we're still what we're still missing is a major transfer that's targeted at working age individuals without children. And this is the group of individuals that continues to have the highest poverty rates in the country. The 18 to 64, because you've got the seniors exactly. benefit and the child benefit. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so this group in the middle is, is omitted. There's, there are very small programs intended to help this group, like the uh, Canada Workers Benefit, mm-hmm. but it's not enough to um, you know, put, put them over the poverty threshold. Courtney Cable is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. She's a Ph.D. student at the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto as we discuss a guaranteed annual income. And, and you know, we've heard people talking about, you know, they want to they help people out of, of poverty and who are struggling. And on the other side, you've got people who say, well, I don't, I don't want to pay for this because they have no um, incentive to work. Do we need a culture change here when it comes to gaining acceptance to this type of program? Uh, yes, I, I I definitely think that that's true. Um, so there's there's concern. There's kind of like two elements when you think about work disincentive, right? There's real work disincentives. So whether people will actually stop working or reduce the amount of time they spend in the, in the labor market when there is a basic income, and of course there's this there's perceived work disincentives, which. Um, prohibit a basic income even existing, right? And so a lot of people are, are I think, uncomfortable with the idea that, uh, or of just giving unconditional income to people, right? There's, yeah. there's social norms, there's these social norms that around reciprocity and um, requiring people to contribute back, contribute to their communities um, in receipt of, you know, you know, paying higher taxes so that they get a basic income. So I think there are social norms around that. I think there are problems um, with the assumption that of that, you know, work is a disutility. I think a lot of people that's their assumption is that particularly among lower income people or the jobs that they do that, that they don't want to work. And um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I th- I do think people want to work, and there will there are are people that won't work, but there are people that will continue to work regardless of a basic income is there or not. Um, but 
changing that, changing that assumption that work is a disutility or a curse is very hard to do and changing the assumption that, um, I, I don't even know if we if we necessarily need to change the assumption about reciprocity, mm-hmm. um, but there are ways to design a basic income so that you can address the concerns of voters and taxpayers who who are concerned about the, the, this notion of reciprocity. How would you like to see a guaranteed annual income rolled out here in Canada? So, again, it depends on the public set sentiment. I think. Um, Ideally, you have a, you know, maybe a $20,000 basic basic guarantee so that individuals who are unable to work um, or, or have no employment income at all receive this $20,000. Um, and it's no questions asked, right? It would go, it would work through the tax system. It could possibly be based on your income from the previous tax year. And there are issues around that right, in terms of fluctuations in income throughout the year, which the EI system is intended to address, but it doesn't address it for low-income individuals right now. Um, so So there is that method. The other method is if we really think people are concerned about work disincentives and if no politician is going to touch uh, touch a basic income or be interested in the idea of a basic income because... Um, you know, they, they, the voters don't support it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can design a basic income so that it incentivizes work and it's conditional on working. So you're kind of getting away from this ideal definition, like ideal notion of what a basic income is, which is it's not related to working or employment at all. But you can design it in a way that, um, you know, if people work between nine to 16 hours a week, we give them enough so that with that employment income, they're at the poverty line. And so in that way, you're kind of imposing this, this uh, element of reciprocity that they have to contribute and work in order to get the basic income. And that work doesn't have to be through formal employment, right? It could be walking the neighbor's dog. It could be, you know, um, picking up bottles, right? Like recycling. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, I just think it would, I think there's, there's various ways you could design a basic income. There's a lot of decision-making that has, it, it, and I, in, in, when you think about the concept of a basic income, it's simple, but it's, there are a lot of little details that have to be uh, determined when, when thinking about designing it. Um, so those are the two main ways. As, as, and so I see it as you definitely have to go the negative income tax way versus the universal way which is clawing it back based on the income of the previous year, rather than just giving it to all, giving that $20,000 to all individuals, which would be um, much too expensive, I think. Mm -hmm. Courtney, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Courtney Cable is a PhD student at the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. And that leads to our unpublished .vote question. Do you support the creation of guaranteed annual income in Canada? Yes, no, or unsure? You can log on and vote right now and have your voice heard. I'd like to thank author Roderick Benz for joining us, along with Stephen Gordon, economics professor at the University of Laval, and Courtney Cable from the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe.
Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.